I'm fascinated by Armageddon, or rather, I'm fascinated by the Apocalypse, which is the series of events leading up to the end of the world, which will take place at a location that is called, in Hebrew, Armageddon. In case you're interested, the word Armageddon comes from a combination of Hebrew words, Har, meaning mountain, and Megiddo, or Megiddon, which was the name of a Canaanite city, which is now in ruins and located about 60 miles outside of Jerusalem. The word apocalypse, on the other hand, comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means something uncovered, as in uncovering a vision of the future, putting together pieces of things that are happening in your environment to predict what's going to happen next. So watching the events that lead up to the end of the world which in Christianity, for instance, that would mean the rapture, the great tribulation, and the final battle that's supposed to take place in the aforementioned ruined Canaanite city. That would be an example of apocalypse. But that's really just one of many apocalypses if you look around at different belief systems. There's a study called eschatology, which is essentially the study of the end of the world. And traditionally, this is the end of the world in the Abrahamic tradition, but it's come to represent the end of the world in general. An eschatologist might be able to tell you, for example, about doomsday, the original usage of doomsday, because we've come to use doomsday to represent any type of end of the world or end of something scenario that will arrive on a particular day. The original Doomsday, however, was coined by the medieval English who believed, it was just commonly accepted, that the world would end 6,000 years after the day of creation. And the day of creation at that point in history was commonly accepted to be around 5200 BCE. So that would mean 1200 CE would have been the proper original doomsday, though several sources have noted that there is no record of anybody going into a crazy panic around 1000 CE, so the degree to which they actually believed this is questionable. The Scandinavian pagan idea of Ragnarok is another great example of an apocalypse. The simplified version of this, and it needs to be (laughs) simplified to fit in the amount of time that we have here, because there's a whole lot that goes into this, and some pretty epic battles, and people drowning in snake venom after destroying a giant serpent in the sky, things of that nature. It's really worth looking into if you have the time. But the simplified version is that there will be an epic final battle between the gods and the giants, and two humans, a male and a female, will be hidden away in the trunk of the tree of life. So that when everything has settled and everybody's killed each other and the world has been destroyed in this epic battle, those humans can come out of the tree where they were protected and restart things again. And this is another thing that you see. You see a lot of battles and floods and fire and brimstone across all of human tradition when it comes to these end-of-the-world scenarios. But you also tend to see an ebb and a flow, a death and a rebirth which then leads to another death, which then leads to another rebirth. The Hindus 
are very specific about this, the fact that existence is an ebb and a flow, an expansion and a contraction. Their tradition notes the actual timescales for this. And though there's a great variety in the numbers given by different uh, segments of belief within the Hindu religion, the most common number that I found for the amount of time that passes between a birth and a death, so the duration of one of these cycles, is about 4.3 billion years. So if you were concerned that the world might end tomorrow or next week or 100 years from now, you're probably okay, at least for a few billion years or so. Now the Jains and the Sikhs have a pretty solid approach to the end of the world, the way that they view it and the way that they approach it in their day-to-day life. Their idea is roughly that things begin and things end And that is inevitable. It's a self-regulating system. And so birth and death occur. The beginning of the world, the end of the world occurs. There's not really anything that you can do about it, nor should there be necessarily, because that's the natural way of things. So try to do well while you're around and focus on that. That's something that you can control. A much more pleasant thought, I think, than epic battles and fire and brimstone and an incredibly practical view compared to a lot of the other ideologies, I think. And that's what I want to talk about this episode. I want to talk about people who take an incredibly practical approach to the end of the world, not people who fixate on karma and tell you to try to do well with the time that you have, but people who have made it their job to look out for potential end-of-the-world scenarios, or end-of-the-country scenarios, or end-of-the-universe scenarios, thinking big, essentially, and looking at the many, many ways that things could get very bad very quickly, and the rug could be pulled out from under us, and then trying to model that and trying to figure out what we might do to prevent that. Because whether or not you believe that things are a cycle and that beginnings and ends are inevitable, that doesn't mean that we have to step back and just let it happen. That's the case, at least according to the philosophy of the scientists who simulate the end of the world. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article that I want to unspool in this episode is called The Scientists Who Simulate the End of the World, and it was published in Fast Company. And it discusses the work of the National Infrastructure Simulation and Analysis Center, where employees do their best to map out potential end-of-the-world scenarios, from global pandemics and megastorms to catastrophic cyber attacks and dirty bomb detonations. And it's actually, it's quite interesting. The NISAC, NISAC? I'll say NISAC was founded in 1999, and their goal was to map out and model the behavior of and relationships between various national infrastructure. So things like supply lines, the electrical grid, food supply chains, things like that. So it was kind of mundane work in a way, like really fascinating if you're into great big charts and graphs and big sets of numbers, but not anything terribly sexy. But they were absorbed after 9-11 into the Department of Homeland Security. This was part of the Patriot Act that 
basically moved them over to that jurisdiction. And as a result, their work took a very sudden right turn. So here was a group that had been mapping out all of these capillaries and veins for the United States, all of these different weak points, the invisible channels through which food and energy and everything else flowed. And so it makes sense that when you start to look at the country as a body of sorts, something that can be strong or can be weak, something that can grow or something that can get sick, that you would take a look at those things and, and do your best to not just identify them, but hopefully reinforce them and protect them, try to make that body healthier. And the reason that these scientists were able to do what they do is the emergence of something called big data. And now big data, that's with a capital B and a capital D, is separate from just data in a couple very important ways. The first is that it actually is massive collections of data. You can run a corner store and have data. You can collect data on the people who come into your store and have the numbers of the different sales that you've had day to day. And you've got your electrical bill. These are data. These are data points that you can take and you can look at and you can glean maybe some information from it that will help you do better in the future to buy the right products and things of that nature. Big data, on the other hand, contains millions, maybe billions or even trillions conceivably of data points. And so rather than just being the customer information for a corner store, it would be the customer information for everyone shopping at every store in the United States. So suddenly you have this insane number of data points. You wouldn't get necessarily any additional information from looking at these millions of pages of data because there's just too many. There's too many for the human brain to crunch. And that's the second innovation that has led to capital B, capital D, big data. And that is the the automation. You, you could call it soft AI, but if you listen to my episode on automation and AI, you'll know why that's a difficult title to apply, and rightfully so. So let's, we'll call it information automation, <laughs> the, the processing of things in an automated fashion. And so we're, we're churning through all of this data, this, these mountains of data that we suddenly have, and we've got these automated systems that allow us to do this. And these systems do more than just organize the data. They're actually programmed to figure out what it means or what it might mean. And what that looks like in practice is collecting this data, organizing it, sorting through it, looking for patterns. And then, very importantly, drawing connections between disparate groups of data. And so a human being looking at all of these data points wouldn't be able to conclude anything even from, you know, the, the sales of a particular candy bar at every store throughout the United States. What these automated systems can do is say, look, we've got this number of people buying Snickers in this particular state in this particular timeline. And then we have this many people using energy in this other state for this particular timeline. Maybe the two are correlated. And it may be that they're not. It's likely that they're not. But the, the idea is that we've got enough automation going and enough capability behind these automated systems that they can look for these relationships. 
and draw corollaries between them and then determine this is something that's meaningful or this is not something that's meaningful. And then most often these corollaries are then brought to the attention of human beings who are working with these systems. And then those human beings can say, yep, that's nothing. Or, holy crap, the amount of energy being used over here actually does relate to the number of candy bars being bought over here. We need to do something about this. Now, obviously, for the purposes of this conversation and this group of people, they're probably not paying very close attention to the number of candy bars being bought anywhere. But the idea that that information could be combined with other information, which could be combined with other information to actually paint a picture of purchasing habits or the path that our food takes to get out to the public is quite relevant because that's something that could be attacked, that's something that could be disrupted, and that's something that could show larger trends that then we can use to help protect those food channels, those supply lines, in the event of a cataclysm of some kind. Quite relevant to this, for example, is if there is a superstorm that takes place somewhere say in Louisiana or say in New York, which has happened in recent history. Having this data allows us to understand where food goes, how it gets there, where it comes from. And if we understand from other chunks of big data what storms are coming where, how strong they can be, where they will land, then we can amplify and defend these supply chains. We can build them up a little bit ahead of time and be better prepared when those storms or other cataclysms arrive. Now, something that this article mentions that I'm really glad it mentioned because it's something that I've been utterly fascinated with for pretty much ever is the idea of chaos theory. Now, the simplified explanation of what chaos theory is, it's being able to look out into the world and look on a huge scale, like a superstorm, or being able to look on the insanely small scale, like a pen rolling off of a desk. And then ideally, based on this information, if we really have good math for it and good, good systems and automation to take that data and derive meaning from it, then we could predict that superstorm and respond in accordance with that prediction. Or we could predict that pen rolling off of the desk and catch it before it lands. Now, obviously, there would probably be a bit more <laughs> utility in being able to predict a giant storm or an earthquake or a war. But the idea of being able to take this same information or the same theory that we can predict the actions of seemingly disparate things, predict consequences of a bunch of different things happening to then figure out what's going to happen on even that minuscule scale shows the scope and potential of this type of information and this type of data gathering and this type of automation and these types of systems. It also shows why it's such a big problem and a big field of study, because the sheer number of variables that, <laughs> that go into something, like predicting a storm or like predicting a pen falling off a desk, it's, it's just immense. It's something that we could not possibly even conceive of all of those variables, not easily. And so as this science develops, as this field of, of research develops, not only are we doing our best to try to gather the information and churn through that information better, but we're also struggling like really, really hard 
to figure out what information needs to be measured and what information needs to be gathered and how best to gather that and how to turn that into data, how to turn that into numbers that we can work with. I want to take this conversation in a couple different main directions. And the first strand that I want to follow is how big data is acquired and how it's being used in general right now. Now, at the moment, a lot of the data that we use for this type of thing is collected through official means like censuses, population censuses, stock keeping software, uh, official data collected by government agencies. It's, it's fair to assume that a lot of the information being used by this group of scientists in the article is being provided through the different government infrastructure, different government agencies. And then there's also a great deal of data coming in directly from things like satellites and through private companies that then provide that data to these agencies in hopes that they can glean some use from it. But there's also, in addition to the overt information that's being gathered, there's a great deal of covert information being gathered. There are cookies that track us as we move throughout the internet. The apps on our phone, the security cameras that are located pretty much everywhere you go these days. The path that we take through a grocery store is tracked both by security cameras and different portals that we move through, the different doors and the different barriers that we pass through. But it's also tracked by the little savings cards that we use. If we use the in-store Wi-Fi internet, it can track us as we move throughout the store. But on top of that, the savings cards then show who we are, what we prefer, what we've purchased over time. And all of this data can be combined for the purpose of, one, figuring out how to better lay out the store, two, figuring out how to best promote things to us, but then three, being able to put this data together into a personality profile and then selling that data to marketing companies. And so a lot of data is gathered in that way as well, things that you wouldn't necessarily think about as you providing data about yourself and your habits to these third-party entities, and yet it's happening all the time around us. There's a lot to be said about that topic. This is something that I, I will do a, an episode on at some point, I'm absolutely certain. But the trade-off here is that you are essentially passively providing this data about yourself and about your habits and the things that you do and the things that you want. And that data then, in turn, is being used to glean different information, whether it's about the market or whether it's about how people like you and your various demographics live and operate in what you want. So some of the more obvious non-apocalypse predicting uses of this data are things like the aforementioned marketing, figuring out how to sell things better to people like us, how to stock shelves in the grocery stores, how to price online goods. These prices fluctuate constantly. If you look around, you can see them shift. And then sometimes if you're being tracked and if you're not being tracked, if you're on your computer or somebody else's computer, if you're on your phone compared to your desktop, you'll see slightly different prices because these prices are dynamically adjusted quite often based on who they think is looking at them. We also see this information being used in terms of playing the stock market. We see it being used by politicians who use it to figure out how to talk to us and how to seem more appealing to us. The optimist in me makes me want to think that they use it to try to determine their platform, so what they're actually supporting, but in a lot of cases, most likely it's primarily being used to figure out what to say so that we think they support what we believe in. 
An important thing to remember, though, about this data and what makes it big data is that as valuable as it is in isolation, as valuable as one data point is, the more you have, both in terms of depth of that one data point, but then also in terms of breadth, in terms of the number of data points that you have, the more valuable it becomes. It's valuable to have a long list of names of people who shop at a particular place. It is way more valuable to have those names plus their emails. And it is way more valuable still to have names plus emails plus buying habits plus age demographic information. Having something like that, that is money in the bank. That is something that people sell back and forth between major companies and government entities all the time. Because that type of data is just immensely valuable for a number of applications. Now some of this data remains data. It is used for the names and emails and demographic information by itself. But part of what makes it big data is that it is filtered through and it is utilized to draw larger conclusions by these automated systems. So the result of this is that these third-party entities, whether they are private companies or whether they are government entities, end up with not just a series of lists and a series of charts and graphs that show these numerical data points. What they end up with is a series of patterns. They end up with a series of predictive patterns that, that show, okay, based on these numbers, based on the different humidity information and the historical trends in terms of rainfall and what's happening in terms of pollution and all of these other data points, we think there's going to be a storm and we think it's going to happen on one of these days in the near future. The end product then is not just these collections of data. It is that oracular next step. And that's based on these systems and automata that, that take this information and try to derive meaning from it. That's the secret ingredient here. On top of how amazing it is that we can collect this type of data today and all the different means that we have of doing that and all the different systems for collecting that data both passively and actively, the secret sauce on top of that is having these different systems, these different programs that can filter through it and make those connections. You can actually see the results of some of these actions of big data collection and big data prediction if you look at what Google thinks of you and who you are. I'll link to this in the show notes, but you can go in and set your preferences for Google services, for how they have you identified and how they then advertise to you, because that's their primary business model is advertising to you and predicting the best stuff to advertise to you. And they put this out there into the world for anybody to access, I think. For one, because then it takes away the, the mystique of it and people then don't wig out that they're being spied on quite so much. But two, they also want you to be able to go in and correct inf any information that they have wrong. And some of it will be wrong, most likely, because the, the data gathering that they have is imperfect. But I think you'll notice if you go to that link, if you go in and check those settings, that they've, they've managed to guess quite a lot about you. And that's because this is, these are not just random shot-in-the-dark guesses based on one data point, one link that you clicked at some point, or one search that you made. It's based on all of the searches, all of the emails, all of the interactions, all of the links that you've clicked. It's a great deal of data that's gone into this. And those data points that they have, the utility of them become even more valuable when they have you actively providing more information. 
And they can do that through like Google Plus, which is their social network, which has you actively identifying yourself as male or female and when you were born and things of that nature. But once again, combining that hard information with the soft information that they've derived from these numerous data points and the algorithms that churn through them to try to drive meaning, it becomes way, way, way more valuable as a result. Now, even with Google being relatively open about what they know about you, it can still be a little wiggy to see this information about yourself. And a lot of people see this and get more than a little offended, I think, because nobody wants to be reduced to their component parts. Nobody wants to be looked at as a sum of properties that are easily stored in a spreadsheet. It would be really weird if somebody looked at me, another human being looked at me, and all they saw was Caucasian male, 31 years old, born in the United States, left-handed, light brown hair, blue eyes, shoe size 10. Like that, That's not me. That's a, a series of descriptors that you could use about me. But to me, I'm so much more than that. And the idea that somebody, even if it's a kind of soulless computer entity, <laughs> is looking at me and seeing less than that, I feel very reduced. And that is the general response to a lot of this, the way that we're being looked at and, as, as we perceive it anyway, judged by these systems. But thankfully, in a lot of cases, being organized in this way is, is not particularly harmful. There's nothing malicious about it. And in fact, it's something that in little ways here and there, it could be argued, they improve our experience. As we walk through the grocery store, as we browse online, rather than being served up just random ads about whatever the hell, we tend to be served up ads that are relevant to things that we are interested in. Now, again, there's a, a lot of issues with this that could go off in a lot of different directions, and that will have to be the topic of a different episode because it's a very big discussion. But I would argue that, for me at least, I would much rather, if I have to see ads, I'd rather see ads that are relevant to me. And if I have to get served up search results, I'd rather they be search results that are relevant to what I'm actually searching for, rather than just random stuff. And it's true that a lot of companies and entities like politicians are using this to try to sway our opinion in some way or another. Knowing about it tends to help alleviate the worst consequences of that. A great deal of the free things, the quality of life things that we enjoy, both in the real world and on the internet, are funded by this type of data collecting. And so you could argue it in a lot of different directions, but for me, in a lot of cases, the value that I get in exchange for this data collection, this data that I provide passively and actively, is very much worth the trade-off in most cases. But it does raise an interesting point that even when you look at Google's infrastructure and the data that they collect in a very sophisticated way and from a lot of different places, they, they can be wrong and very often are in big ways or little ways. You know, fiction is awash with this idea, this idea of a prophet or an oracle making a prediction and then being wrong. Either being wrong completely in predicting something that was a complete fabrication, or being wrong in the sense that they predict some kind of destiny that can be changed. Either way, a wrong prediction is a wrong prediction, and unfortunately these predictions themselves, just by being made, influence the way that we act. 
they influence our perception of ourselves. And so being organized in a, to a particular group might make us act differently because we know that we are being judged and labeled in that way. That is a real and important consequence of this type of data collection and automation and filtering. Another major consequence of this is that we very often, online in particular, but, but increasingly in the real world too, find ourselves in what's called a filter bubble. And a filter bubble, uh, one of the most obvious ways to see this, is to go to your Facebook page and see what shows up on your timeline. What you see on that timeline is not the sum of everything that everybody you follow has posted. There is an algorithm that filters through the stuff that other people have posted, and it tries to pull out the things that you will be most interested in seeing and presents only those things to you. You have to do a little bit of extra work to try to see everything that somebody you follow posts. And the consequence of this is that we tend to see what we want to see, or what will evoke a response from us when we go to social networks and, and to the internet in general, largely, it could be argued. On Facebook, then, we're much more likely to be served up news items and updates that will make us feel happy, that will make us feel sad, that will make us feel outraged. We're very unlikely to be served up an update that doesn't make us respond at all or that an algorithm that these systems have judged will not make us respond at all based on historical trends, based on keywords, based on the type of media that it happens to be. And so again, these things are imperfect, and so we're missing out on a lot of things that may be relevant to us, but not relevant in a way that it can measure, not relevant in a clicking the like button or clicking the share button or leaving a comment way. And what this looks like then over time is that we begin to see more and more and more of a very particular type of content. And we are less likely then to see this other excluded type of content, things that could very well be relevant to us, or it could be information that we need to have that doesn't agree with information that we already have, but might educate us, might update us. We're less likely to be exposed to unfamiliar ideas, things that make us uncomfortable, and unfortunately, this tends to be the default of how we operate on the internet. And it has certainly increased or, or seems to have increased the amount of participation that we see, more people spending more time online, which is really the goal of these different groups that are largely funded by advertising. But that doesn't mean that the amount of time that we're spending is valuable time. It doesn't mean that we're getting much out of it. It just means that we're spending that time. This is another topic that I'll probably spend a good deal of time talking about at some point because there is a whole lot to say about it, but the filter bubble is something that is very beneficial for a certain type of attention-driven business model, but is not something that's great for the way that we educate ourselves and for our personal growth. Once more, being aware of this certainly does help, and there's things that you can do to try to pop the filter bubble, or at least reduce its influence in terms of filtering out stuff that you might actually want to be exposed to. But for the vast majority of people, that will never happen. So these filter bubbles are realities that we operate within. Now, another way in which big data can often negatively impact the way that society operates is that we can become so dependent on it that we tend to take its predictions as truths 
rather than probabilities. An excellent example of this is predictive law enforcement, which is is somewhat of a misnomer because there's still a great deal of human involvement here. But what we often end up with is data coming in from these big data resources that are making predictions about the type of people that we should be watching out for, the type of people involved in crimes, looking at historical data, and then basically telling law enforcement, look for these attributes in people, and then act in accordance with that. And what that generally means is paying extra special close attention to certain genders, certain races, certain religious denominations, certain age demographics, and then filtering based on that information. Now, on one hand, this can be incredibly useful because law enforcement has a finite amount of resources, and this allows them then to pay extra special close attention to the people who are supposedly the most likely to commit future offenses. But unfortunately, if you find yourself with one or more of these attributes, you also find yourself with extra special close attention being paid to you and people like you, or at least people like you according to these certain properties that are being applied to you. And this is troubling for multiple reasons. It's troubling because then, again, it reduces us to merely a series of labels that we have which may or may not actually be relevant to us and things that we do. If I was pulled aside more frequently at airports because I'm left-handed, I'd be a little upset about that. I mean, I would, I would understand in a way that the security people are just trying to do their jobs and they are trying to do it in the most effective and efficient means possible. And as a result, they're using this data that's been made available to them to pay extra special close attention to certain groups of people, say, left-handed people, But at the same time, I would be thinking, dude, I've never done anything. I'm not somebody who is a threat. Like, why is it that you're looking at me and and considering me to be a threat? And if I found out that it was because I was left-handed, I would feel quite discriminated against, and I think rightfully so. The same is true for people of different religions, for people of different skin color, for people of different gender, or people who dress a certain way. I can understand why the people doing the screening are acting in that way. It makes perfect sense looking at things purely from a step back and and cold and rationally and using the data they have available. But it creates a troublesome system in a society in which we try to treat people equally, regardless of what properties they happen to have and how those look within a given spreadsheet. There was a recent story in ProPublica about machine bias in criminal sentencing. And it's a really great piece. I'll I'll link to this in the show notes. But essentially what it says is kind of what we've been talking about. We've got a situation in which law enforcement is making use of this wonderful new technology, really highly regarded and respected technology, that is able to look at historical data and a bunch of other numerical points and determine with apparently, reportedly at least, a degree of correctness, which prisoners are most likely to become repeat offenders. And the issue that's been discovered and that is reported on within this article is that investigative reporters have found the results being spit out by this algorithm, by this software, seems to be biased towards people of color. 
And looking at past results, it seems at least that people who are more likely to offend or that have shown to be more likely to offend but are white are given a lower score, lower being better in this case, a lower likelihood to become repeat offenders than people of color in similar situations with similar numbers otherwise. It's giving them a much higher ranking in terms of being more likely to offend. And this impacts a lot. This impacts, obviously, the way that law enforcement looks at the people that they're bringing in. But more importantly, for the purposes of this story, it influences whether or not they are likely to be released early and whether they're likely to be released at all. And again, on on some level, it's simply troubling that people are being reduced to a collection of labels and then judged based on that. But above and beyond that, that simple concern, which again, there's some valid arguments, I think, to using this data and using it in, in some ways to try to keep people safe. But what's, what's troubling here is that we're looking at a system where we are trusting on a very high level, on a level that is directly impacting people's lives above and beyond just an inconvenience at, in the airport line when passing through the TSA. These are people who are being kept in prison for years and years and years based on data that may be faulty. And it's important to note, I mean, within statistics, they, they give probabilities, not absolutes. And so anytime this type of software makes a prediction, they're not saying this is a 100% certain prophecy that I'm giving right now. It might say this is an 89% prophecy that I'm giving. And that means that, you know, even if it's wrong, if that 11% happens, which is definitely possible, it's within the realm of possibility, one out of 10 times it will be wrong. But the problem here is that humans are really bad at reading probability. And we can look at something like that. And if there's an 89% chance that it rains today and then it doesn't rain, you're going to be a little bit pissed off because 89% seems pretty damn sure. And you made plans and you, you made adjustments to your schedule based on that rain prediction. So even though that prediction is still correct and that, that 11% happened and it didn't rain, your brain still has kind of this built-in heuristic, this built-in shortcut that 89% means near certainty. And therefore, when that certainty doesn't occur, we can't really figure out what happened. And so when dealing with software of this type and dealing with predictions, supposed oracular predictions of this type, it's important that we keep that in mind. And unfortunately, because it's still so new and because we are just by default so bad at probability, it seems to me that we will probably need a better mechanism of using this data and applying it in particular before we can get the full benefit from it. Because up until that point, what we have is possibly good data being used to support pre-existing biases. Or what we have is decent data that, because it's not perfect, because it's not as perfect as it should be, is giving us information and recommendations that's just off enough that there's a lot of accidental abuse happening in the system and in a very important, pivotal aspect of the system that impacts a whole lot of lives. Now, one more point about this particular piece of software that's mentioned in the ProPublica article. It's important to remember that although the algorithm, the, the system that goes through and makes connections between data, can be very, very good, let's say for the sake of argument that 
aspect of this program is absolutely perfect. It's not. I seriously doubt that it is. But let's say for the sake of argument that it is. This software and this process and this prediction can still be very, very wrong based on the way data is collected or the type of data being collected. Because again, all of this data has to be converted somehow into numbers that can be read and utilized by this algorithm. And so as a result, you can take something that is very subjective or that has a lot of depth to it and reduce it to a number that does not contain all of that depth. A good example of this is that some of the data points used by this software is whether or not your parents have ever been in prison and whether or not you achieved higher education. There can be a lot of different reasons that your parents went to prison at some point. There can be a lot of different reasons that you didn't achieve higher education. It's not all because of a bad family dynamic. It's not all because of a tradition within your family of committing crimes. And to assume that it is, and to assume that these data points say something definite or near definite about you, it it would be laughable if it wasn't so harmful to the people that it's being applied to. Particularly because in this example, the way it's judging people is putting them away. It's, it's taking them away from their lives and, and keeping them in prison. And in some cases, again, this, this might be valid. It might be reinforcing something that we already know or should know. But in a sufficient number of cases, I would argue, this is using information that is not directly relevant or not as relevant as it would lead you to believe to the decisions being made on the other side of that algorithm. So it's a good example of the best of intentions and people with the best of intentions using an incredibly powerful tool that they don't quite understand the strengths and weaknesses of. And as a result, they they start to use it quite wantonly, and a lot of people get hurt as a result of that. So I do think that there's a lot of potential for this type of big data application. I just think that we're not at the point yet where we should trust it quite as thoroughly as we do. Now, finally, I'd like to talk a little bit more about end-of-the-world scenarios and why we tend to focus on some more than others. I mentioned in a past episode, my, my episode about AI and automation, about potential technological end-of-the-world scenarios. And one of them that's particularly chilling to me is the idea that an artificial intelligence that is capable of upgrading itself and capable of becoming a better and better version of itself and doing whatever it does better and better might purely by accident or or actually purely by following its programming by committing to this idea of creating more and more and better and better might destroy everything not just the planet but the universe and the example given would be a machine that might turn every bit of matter in the universe into paperclips by following its prime directive to create more paperclips. That, that is absolutely chilling to me because it seems all too likely. And it's something that I don't see a rational, secure, predictable way around just yet. But there's a lot of other technological cataclysms that are just like that and maybe a little bit better known. The, the idea of, of nuking the planet into a state where it doesn't support life anymore maybe accidentally creating a black hole or something equally horrible on the planet that then results in a great loss of life or the complete extinguishing of of life on the planet. 
gray goo is another often used trope within science fiction, but it's also, it's used <laughs> as a trope because it is quite possible. Uh, gray goo is a cloud of nanobots, like machines that we can't even really see, they're so small, that then kind of gobble up everything to create more of themselves, these self-replicating machines that, again, simply by following their prime directive, end up destroying everything. I mean, hell, it, it could be something that we do accidentally, not as a an evolution or a progression towards something in particular, but maybe we just create enough noise of whatever wavelength that we attract a malevolent alien civilization and, and bring them down on us. It could be that this destruction happens as the result of the passive consequences of us just doing what we do anyway. These are obviously incredibly important potentialities to pay attention to and prepare for. But they also tend to be the most sexy. They're the most visually interesting in a lot of ways. And as a result, they are often portrayed in mass media and on screen. And it's the type of thing that we tend to pay attention to more because it seems so horrible and so visually comprehensible as something horrible. In reality, though, a whole lot of the things that we probably should be concerned about, and which are arguably the more dangerous and more likely scenarios, are the ones that aren't terribly sexy. They're the ones that you probably won't see in any movies because they are slow and steady, maybe nearly invisible. There's no zombies or aliens involved. I'm talking about you know the slow, steady effects of global climate change. Maybe not just the emergence of global superstorms and the ice caps melting, but the result of that, the result of a planet becoming inhospitable to life as we know it. I, I'm, I'm almost certain that life will propagate in some way, but it may not be life that is friendly to us. It may be that we end up with a planet where there are things that have survived, but it's not the planet that we grew up on. And as a result, the way that we've evolved is meant for one global situation. And what we find ourselves trying to live in is another situation. And as a result, everything that we do requires a greater number of resources to perform and we may not be able to sustain the type of population that we've grown accustomed to. We may not have the type of food that sustains us well, so we have to create other things and work really, really hard and make a lot of sacrifices to make it work. It may be that we accidentally, through our own action or our own inaction, kill off a species that we didn't even know was integral to our survival, but turns out to be some kind of pollinator or some kind of core component to the global food web that we totally didn't realize was an important component, but definitely turned out to be. And we, and we only find out after the fact when the entire ecosystem or some major ecosystem begins to collapse and we find ourselves suddenly without resources that we need to survive and to thrive and to experience the quality of life that we've come to take for granted. On that same note, maybe it's just potable water that becomes inaccessible. We've already seen around the world in different circumstances that when water that we can drink, that we need to drink to survive, becomes unavailable, all-out war occurs in some cases. Some of the world's wars that have occurred are quite arguably as much about water as about anything else, and controlling that water and access to it. So if we're unable to create means of desalinating water on scale, on a scale that can feed the entire planet, we could find ourselves in a very treacherous situation. And yet, that situation, slowly dying of thirst as a planet together, is not visually interesting. 
it's not sexy enough. You're not going to find a lot of fiction, a lot of stories that are written about it. And as a result, it's very difficult for us to imagine it. We can't put ourselves in those shoes. It seems so unlikely, so unrealistic, despite the fact that it is probably a lot more realistic than some of the big sexy disasters that we tend to think about. And this occurs for the exact same reason that most of us, I think, are more concerned about dying in a plane crash than in a car accident. Statistically, you are far more likely to die or be grievously injured in a car accident than on a plane. A plane is incredibly safe by most standards, but particularly by the standards of of being compared to being in a car. And yet, dying in a plane accident would be so horrific, and it's something that we can picture and just experience viscerally on a mental level, that we invest a lot of time and effort worrying about that and trying to do things to prevent that type of cataclysm. Similarly, when we look at the animals that we save, that we focus on, that we focus our attention and our energy and our resources on saving, they tend to be animals that we find to be quite cute things that we can relate to, that we can see ourselves in. We spend a lot more money on saving koalas and dogs than we do on saving endangered bug species and certain types of rodents and even pangolins, which are one of the most highly prized and trafficked animals in the world because they're not quite as relevant to us in the sense that they're not quite as cute and not something that we can relate to quite as easily. And as such, we tend not to focus as much of our love and attention and affection on them. They're not sexy in the same way that dogs and cats and horses and things like that are. And we don't do this because we're idiots and we don't do it because we're hateful towards pangolins and not hateful towards cats. We do it, again, because our brain has this set of shortcuts that it follows, its own sort of algorithms that it follows in trying to determine what to pay attention to, and what to worry about, and what to invest in. What to keep at the forefront of your mind when you're deciding what to be worried about and what to cuddle. Being aware of this helps. Being aware of the way that we respond to things, in the same way that being aware of how data is collected online and how that filters our experience. It helps us make better decisions, but it also helps us recognize what we should be focusing on and what we shouldn't be focusing on how we should spend our time and attention and resources, and how we might do that intentionally rather than just doing it out of habit or reflex. And this idea fits really well within the the end-of-the-world concepts, some that I've already mentioned, the Hindu faith and the Scandinavians and uh, Buddhists, some sects of Buddhism as well, tend to see the world as an ebb and a flow. There's a beginning and an end, and then after that end, there's another beginning. And that process goes on and on and on forever. There's no ending it. And there are different amounts of time in between each beginning and end, depending on who you talk to. And in some cases, there's massive battles and fire and brimstone and great floods and things like that. And in some cases, there's just a slow but steady erosion of everything that we've come to know before the end and leading up to the end. These types of belief systems are commonly called cyclic cosmology, which is essentially the idea that not just the planet, but the cosmos ebbs and flows, ends and begins endlessly, cyclically. And this is actually quite similar to many current theories within the scientific world, 
that the universe goes from Big Bang to Big Crunch or, or some other label for those events, the creation and destruction, and that it does this endlessly forever. There's no beginning, no end. It's infinite. I tend to think that these concepts are quite poetic, but it also makes me think of different types of beginnings and different types of ends. It could be that when we reach the quote-unquote end, it's not the end of something in that we've destroyed the planet or destroyed the universe. It could be the end of a way of living or a state of being, the end of what we've come to know. And that doesn't necessarily represent a bad thing. It could be that what we've come to know is the world that we live in with all of its flaws, and the end of the world is actually the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of how things have been. And that new beginning then represents a change of something new. The end of civilization, but the beginning of what? Something. Something beyond civilization. In other words, it may be that when the world ends, it's simply the beginning of another world, or another galaxy, or another universe. All things must come to an end, according to some belief systems at least, and this episode is no exception. I'd love to hear what you think of the show, leaving some stars and a review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts would be immensely helpful. That helps other people discover the show by ensuring that the big data software being used to measure popularity and other things of that nature push me further up the rankings. If you'd like to support the show, that is a wonderful way to do it, but you can also support it monetarily by contributing a buck an episode, or more if you like, but a dollar would be wonderful. Or you can purchase one of my books. You can do the former at letsknowthings.com and the latter at colin.io. Also at letsknowthings.com, you can find the show notes for this episode with a bunch of links and additional explanation. And if you're not yet subscribed to the LKT newsletter, which I send out weekly and which contains a curated collection of interesting links, you can do that there as well. The LKT Facebook page can be found at facebook.com slash let's know things. Feel free to drop by, let me know what you think about the show, or ask a question. You can share a link to something interesting, or you can just say hello. I've got another project called Consider This, which is hosted over at YouTube. If you dig this show, you might dig that one as well. Consider popping over and giving it a look, and if you enjoy it, subscribe so you can be notified each time I publish a new episode. My blog can be found at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find me around the internet at Colin is my name. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.